Hello, and welcome to this speed listen installment of the Six Gun Justice podcast. I'm Paul Bishop. My compadre Richard Prosh and I co-host the full-length episodes of the Six Gun Justice podcast, but ride solo for these speed lesson bonus installments. With me today is a true Renaissance man, Peter Shereko. A recognized historian, actor, and author, Peter Shereko has appeared in over 150 films and television shows and over 50 stage plays. Two of his books, Tombstone, The Guns and Gear, and The Fringe of Hollywood, The Art of Making a Western, have become the top go-to guidebooks for Western weapons collectors and film producers. On a never-ending quest to bring a more accurate portrayal of the Old West in films and television shows, Peter founded Caravan West Productions, which provides everything a Western film production needs, from props and wardrobe to livestock and the buckaroos to manage them, and even a 2,400-acre Western film site in Southern California. He also maintains an arsenal of over a 1,000 historically accurate Western weapons. But above and beyond all of those accolades, Peter is a generous and kind friend with a gold mine filled with never-ending stories. Hello, my friend, and welcome to the Six Gun Justice podcast. Thanks, Paul. I'm glad to be here. Let's go all the way back because you've done so much. What was your first introduction to the Western genre, and how did you actually get involved in it? Then we'd have to go all the way back. I was a kid growing up in the 50s, and TV westerns ruled the screen. I went to the movies all the time, and I played cowboys. And a friend of mine who's a psychiatrist said years ago, listen, when you're 10 years old, that's when you decide what you want to be in life. As Henry David Thoreau says, man lives in quiet desperation because he doesn't achieve the dreams of his childhood. And for some reason, I have, and that has made all the difference. When people ask me, are you going to retire? And I said, I can't retire. I never had a job. And that's the whole secret behind it. That's fantastic because they say if you're doing what you love for work, you'll actually never work a day in your life. I always feel that I have two genes in me that I recognize. One is the collecting gene, and I always had this adventure gene. So I have always been amassing things all of my life, whether they were bottle caps or baseball cards or comic books, even cap guns. As a kid, I wanted the Fanner 50, but I had the Mattel shooting shell guns. I had a Daisy air rifle, not a BB gun. I wasn't allowed to have those as a kid. I would strap them on and walk maybe a half a mile from my house into the woods. And I do it with friends or I do it by myself. And I always had this adventure gene. It's the same thing when I travel across country now on my little buying sprees. I don't take a map with me. I don't look at GPS. I just take the back roads and I fill up my motorhome with stuff that I buy in little towns all across the country or estate sales or yard sales or flea markets. And I'm always looking for stuff. So to me, that's my adventure gene. And then I use all of that stuff that I collected to rent to the movies. So that's why I created my little company about 30 years ago, 32 years ago, actually. What was the first major piece of collecting that you brought in? Major piece of collecting as far as the Western genre goes. I have a Gatling gun and I have a Winchester rifle that's marked 101,000 that I picked up years ago from a collector in Colorado. It's uh, nickel-plated, engraved, marked 101,000. The factory letter from Winchester says it left the factory in 1883 fully nickel-plated. And I've had that, and I've used it in several shows. No kidding. Wow, that's fantastic. What was the first movie or television show that you were in? 
I was in a little low-budget movie for Marvel Comics called The Amazing Spider-Man. That goes back to the 70s, and it was before the TV series, and it was before all of this Marvel Universe happened. It was just this little thing. I was actually hired as a thug, and that created two things in my life. Number one, we were on location in upstate New York, about two hours from the city. And the man who was playing Spider-Man, or the stuntman who was doing all of the stunts, broke his ankle in one of the shots, and they didn't know what to do. I was young in incredible shape back then, and I said, oh, I can do that. And they looked at me and they said, you can. And I said, yeah. I put on the Spider-Man costume and I was doing all of the fight scenes. Had never done them before, but was making them up as I went along, which actually led to a job at Marvel Comics where I was Spider-Man and a couple of the other superheroes going off to do supermarket openings and local TV shows, whether it was in Cincinnati or Miami. Every weekend for literally 10 years, I was doing Spider-Man gigs all around the country for Marvel Comics. What was your first Western? My first Western? Wow. I would have to say it was a year before we did Tombstone, and it was called Ghost Brigade or Grey Knight which was a Civil War zombie movie. And I actually did it with Billy Bob Thornton. I played a Union captain and Billy Bob played a Southern sergeant. We were fighting each other. And of course, all of our lines were just between he and I. And this is one of my faux pas in life. Billy Bob said to me, you know, I'm really tired of this business. I'm going to either get out of it or I'm going to write my own stuff. And I looked at him and I said, Billy, you're a hick from Arkansas. Who's going to pay attention to you? Then he did Sling Blade. It's one of those little errors that I made in life. Billy and I have been friends for almost 30 years. We've worked on five shows together. But before I did the movie, Grey Knight, I did Wild West shows. We took the first Wild West show to the People's Republic of China, did 144 live shows for the Chinese audience, which was fun, all through the 80s. I was in New York doing soap operas, stage shows, and commercials. And I kept on saying to people, I want to go to California. I want to make Westerns. I was doing a show called All My Children, and I was on that for a couple of years, just as a minor character, but I was on there. And every day, we would come in at 7 o'clock in the morning. We'd have a small rehearsal. Then we'd have a dress rehearsal for cameras. Then we'd break for lunch. And then in the afternoon, we'd come in and do the show in one take. Well, up in the green room, there was a TV. And if you were the first in the green room, you could watch whatever you wanted. If I didn't get up there first, everybody else would go in and they'd watch the other soap operas to see what was going on. There were reruns of Bonanza on Channel 5, and I would turn them on. And one day I'm sitting in there watching, and other cast members came in, and it was Hoss in the middle of the desert. One of the guys said, oh my God, can you imagine filming in the desert for three months? And I sat back and smiled, and I said, yeah, I'd love it. I couldn't stay in New York more than three months. I would be there for about three months, and then I would pack my pickup truck with a sleeping bag, my 45, and I would travel out west. And I'd go to New Mexico or Colorado or Wyoming, and I would camp out for a week. I would refresh myself, and then I'd go back to New York, and I'd say, okay, I'm good for another three months. But every three months, I would just travel out west. I have this feeling for the west, and I always had that all my life. Four years in the Air Force, and then four years in college, and then I went into New York. And a girl that I was going out with, who I adored, 
say, listen, you have to pigeonhole yourself. You don't let these other people pigeonhole you or you'll do that for the rest of your career, whatever they want you to do. So I said, well, I like the outdoors. I don't like, I don't like the city life. I didn't live in New York City. I had a log cabin 50 miles away in upstate New Jersey, which was near Greenwood Lake in New York. It was on the New Jersey-New York state border. It was 50 miles from the city. It was a log cabin. I had no heat. I had no hot water. So I would take a cold shower. It was 15 degrees outside. It was 35 degrees in my cabin. I would put a fire in the fireplace, run, take a cold shower, run in front of the fireplace, and the steam would rise off me. as It would get up to about 60 degrees inside. So people would come out to visit me in the summer, but they wouldn't come in the winter. When did you first take notice that the Westerns were not authentic? Back in the 70s, I started reading and studying the West. My generation were the first ones to really start saying, hey, this is wrong. This is the wrong hat. That's the wrong gun belt. That's the wrong saddle. That didn't exist back then. I was starting to buy a lot of guns at the time, period guns, not modern stuff. Never had an interest in that. I would pick up old gun magazine to read and study. And there was a 1959 Guns and Ammo magazine, and there was an article in it about a Gary Cooper movie about the Seminole Wars in 1848 in Florida. And he's carrying a seven and a half inch single action Colt. And all the soldiers are dressed like the Spanish-American war soldiers because they just gave them a different look from your typical cavalry pictures. The article was talking about why are they having a cult that didn't exist in 1848? And that started my interest in looking at the history behind it. And then I'm one of those guys that sit there and watch a movie, watch a TV show and say, ah, that didn't exist. Why are they doing that? Then I started meeting the people who were supplying them. And talking to them and finding out why they were doing it. It all has to do with money. They'll come in with the answers. Ah, the audience doesn't know that. The audience doesn't care. And then I found out that some of the people making the movies didn't care, didn't know, didn't want to know. Also, in the 80s, when I came out to to California to make Westerns, I'm talking to a lot of the cowboy action shooters, a lot of the guys who were doing the Wild West shows, and they were all complaining about the same thing. It's the wrong hat. It's the wrong clothes. It's the wrong saddle. And they all wanted to talk about it, but nobody wanted to do anything about it. So in 1989 is when I created my little company. I said, I'm going to do something about it. I'm going to make it right. I'm going to put the right stuff in. And it's always been a battle. It's been a battle since day one. Because when you're dealing with line producers, when you're dealing with directors, when you're dealing with producers, they don't care. I had a meeting with a line producer. Line producers are the guys that hire you. And if you don't know what a line producer is, every item in the budget, every item in the show is put on a line. They have so much for catering. They have so much for cameras. They have so much for costumes. They have so much for props. And I went into a meeting with them. It was a fictional story, but it was about Jesse James. Jesse and Frank James rob a bank. And then, of course, the hero of the show has to go and capture them. And I sitting there talking and I said, okay, tell me what year this is. Is it 76? Is it 79? Is it 71? Jesse James and Frank James did their first robbery in 67. So it runs that whole gamut until 82 when Jesse James was assassinated. And I said, whatever that year is, I will have the correct guns that Jesse and Frank had. I'll have the correct gun belts that they had. All of this is in museums, what they had. So I said, I'll have that. And the line producer looked at me. 
And he said, what are you talking about? Jesse James is a fictional character. My eyes lit up. I said, you think he's a fictional character? I said, whoa, we don't have this job. And we didn't because the, the people making them, they know their jobs well, but they don't know the period. They haven't studied the period. So customers know that in scene five on page 16, I have to have this character in a costume. And then 30 pages later, he's in another costume. They will have those, but they don't know what the costumes are. There was one of those film festivals. So they called me up and they asked me, they said, would you come down and moderate the costumes for these movies? And I said, sure. So I went down there and I'm sitting there and they had 10 costumers. And every customer is having their little speech. And they said, we do all of this research and we put all this together. They all had ideas behind West, what Westerns look like. And I'm looking at the drawings that they had. And I'm saying, the guy's in a Buscadero rig. The guy's in a, what I call a taco hat, where the sides are, are bent up. It's like a modern rodeo hat. I said, so why are all of these things wrong? And they all looked at me and said, well, they don't give us enough time for research. They don't give us enough time for any of this. And I said, that's why I created the company. Come to me and I will help you. When we did Tombstone, we had a meeting. Now, I was both cast and crew. That was the buckaroo coordinator, and I was supplying all of the guns and the saddles, and we built most of the costumes. What happened was we're sitting there at this meeting, and Kevin Jar, who was the writer and the first director, he said, all right, I'm bringing the buckaroos in. Buckaroos are a group that I created. When all of my friends were asking me, why don't you make a good Western? And I said, guys, I can't do it without your help. I need people who know more than I do when it comes to a Western. So the buckaroos I hired are guys that are gunsmiths, horse trainers, horseshoers, saddle makers, chap makers, costume makers, the guys who shape hats, the guys who do all of this stuff. They're all of these things, and they know more about those particular items than I do. So I said, I can't do it without you. So when we came to Tombstone, I hired the buckaroos. Kevin said, all right, I want these guys to dress like an 1880s Arizona cowboy. The first guy I had in my book, I had him in alphabetical order. There's a famous picture of a hash knife cowboy in 1882, 1883. He took that picture and he made his shaps. He made his clothes exactly like the ones in the photo. Then he took his photo with the same style saddle, with the same guns and everything else, and duplicated that photo with him in his outfit in sepia tone. So I showed the book to Kevin. He looked at the first picture. He goes, that is an Arizona cowboy of 1880s. That's what I want. And Joe Poro, the costume designer, looked at it. And then he came up to me after the meeting and he said, what book did you get this photo out of? And I said, that's not a photo from a book. That's a photo of one of the buckaroos that I'm bringing in. And he looked and he went, oh my God. He says, I can't have the extras looking better than the principals. How can I do that? I said, don't worry about it. I will help you. He had 10 weeks of pre-production for the movie. And one of my buckaroo's wife was making clothes, making vests and making shirts. I made a deal with Stetson Hats to get the right-shaped hat called an Austral, which was the original Boss of the Plains hat, four-inch crown, four-inch brim. So I made the deal with Stetson. I made the deal with guys who made the period-correct boots, the period-correct shaps, the spurs. I was getting all of that stuff in. And then Lonnie, who was the wife of Logan, who was one of the Red Sash gang, she made 400 shirts. Joe designed the shirts for everybody. He designed the costumes for everybody. He says, this is the color I want. He bought the material, gave it to Lonnie, and then Lonnie made 400 shirts, the vests, and so forth. 
So that's what gave the look for Tombstone, is making it historically correct. And that's why it became such a, a cult movie. And it's the one thing that I have my discussions with. I want to say arguments, but they're not arguments. They're discussions with these different movies. Especially, we do a lot of low-budget Westerns because that's we do four or five, six of them a year. Those are the people that are making Westerns. The big-budget movies, maybe once every two years, does a Western. But for the most part, the Western movies are made with low-budget companies. Well, the low-budget people make the same mistake over and over again. And I tell the customers that they bring in, dress the people in the same outfit. Don't have them have six different changes. Don't have them have six different looks. Number one, it's going to cost you money because now you need six costumes. And you need doubles of each one in case something happens to it. That's a lot of money that you don't have. Put that in the same outfit. When we did Tombstone, all the actors had the same look throughout the entire movie. So when you saw a red shirt coming in or a black pair of boots with cards on it, you knew Curly Bill was walking in. Johnny Ringo looked the same. Everybody, Turkey Creek, Texas Jack, we all had the same outfit and we all wore it through the thing so that you could cut anything in. Major TV shows do it. Smart TV shows do it. If you ever saw Matlock, he's always in his blue seersucker suit. So that you could have a stunt double or you can have a driver in the car doing second unit filming. You might have the blue seersucker suit arm out the window and it's Matlock driving somewhere. So they can film all of those driving scenes in one day and then cut them into every show of the season because he's in the same outfit. He's not in a different outfit. And when you have people in different outfits, sometimes it gets confusing to people. And then you can't cut them in. In a movie, you might have a guy getting off the stagecoach, and then he walks into a bar, and then you see him coming in the bar. That scene might be filmed three weeks later. So if you have him in the same outfit, there's no problem. If you have him in different outfits, then it gets very confusing. And people say, oh, making a movie, making a Western is so hard. It's so difficult. It is difficult if you make it difficult. I make it easy. First of all, because I have studied so much. That's what one of my books is about. Yes, The Fringe of Hollywood, The Art of Making a Western. And I chose Fringe because I'm always in buckskin coats. I have 35 historically correct buckskin coats with fringe on them. And I say, I am on the fringe of Hollywood because even if they do it wrong, they're going to tell you in their PR stuff how correct it is. And with me, it's no, that's wrong. Let's do it right. Let's make it right. And you were able to do it for less money than if they were just to fumble through trying to put it all together. A costume company doesn't have a location. A wrangling company doesn't have a location. A gun company doesn't have a location. A gun company doesn't have horses. A horse company, a wrangling company, doesn't have guns. None of them have costumes. So all of these different companies all over, to do a job, they have to charge as much as they can in order to pay for the horses, to pay for the guns, to pay for the costumes, to pay for everything, to make a living. The company that I put together, we're the only company that does everything for a Western. You're really the one-stop shopping option for everybody. I call myself the Walmart of Westerns because I can take a lost leader. I'm doing 15 different jobs on a movie. And doing those, I can make a package deal and I can make it cheaper for them. So I can house a low-budget movie that has a million-dollar budget, not a $100 million budget. 
when you have a hundred million, two hundred million dollar budget, you can do anything and it doesn't matter. They can hire everybody and they'll have six months of free production where they can design everything. But on the low budget movies, they might have three days of free production and they have to scramble. That's why most of the low budget movies that I don't work on, you'll see the wrong saddles because nobody has the right saddles. The correct saddles are not done by any major company. They're all done by individuals across the country, mom and pop little businesses. And I happen to know all the mom and pop businesses, so I will buy their saddles. My old brochure used to say, one stop shopping today for yesterday. I am one stop shopping when it comes to a Western. There are people that do these low budget movies and they might do four or five or six movies a year and they'll do one Western. Well, most of these guys, when they first started working with me and then they said, my God, you do everything. And I said, yeah, that's what we do. And we do it well. We do it better than anybody else. Now they get to the point where they just call me up and say, okay, I got a Western to do in another month. Here's the script. Pick out what role you want to play and pick out and then design everything. That's fantastic. So I then design everything, and then I say, let me hire the crew. Let me hire the armorer. Let me hire the wranglers. Let me hire the costumers, the set decorators, the prop people. Let me just hire those guys because I've worked with them for so many years. One guy has worked with me since we did Grey Knight in 1992, and he still works with me. And I have a lot of the guys that worked with me on Tombstone. Greg Worley worked with me since Tombstone. That's 1993, and we've been working together ever since. Because these guys know what they're doing and they know how to do things. If you look at everybody, if you look at Clint Eastwood movies, Clint has hired the same crew since the 1970s. Spielberg hires the same crew forever. Once you have people that do their job and do it well and know what you want to get from them, you bring them in. So yes, I hire the same crew that I've been hiring for years. Once you put together a great team, you keep that team together and they get better and better with experience. I trust people and I believe them at their word. When I say, can you ride a horse? They go, yeah, I can ride a horse. So when they come out, I say, okay, saddle that horse, bring them over here. But they look at me and they go, oh, I don't know how to saddle. I said, then you don't know how to ride. Don't tell me you do. A few people that I've worked with over the years, I'll go to them after the first day of working. And I'll say, congratulations, you've had two jobs with me. And they'll go, two jobs? I say, yes, your first and your last. You very quickly get to see who knows what they're doing and who doesn't. We do a lot of commercials, mostly Western commercials, whether it's horses or costume or props or whatever. A couple of years ago, we did an AT&T commercial and they were going to have Argentinian gauchos. So they called me up and I said, okay, can you supply the horses? And I said, yep, can supply the horses. They came out and they said, okay, we're going to have a riding audition. The producer looked at me and she goes, okay, they're real South American gauchos. I said, okay, great. Half of them couldn't get on a horse to begin with or look bad getting on a horse. And the other half couldn't ride. She goes, they're not real, are they? And I said, no, they're not. She's looking at me. She says, hey, if we dye your hair, would you be a gaucho? I said, yeah, you bet. So we had six gauchos and they were all buckaroos. They were all guys that I hired for the show and we made them look like South American gauchos because they could ride and they could do things. And that's what we do. What's next on your schedule for the next few months out at the ranch? I just had a show yesterday working on the ranch, which was a, a modern show with gangs killing people. We were there till two o'clock in the morning. And of course, I got up at six this morning so I can get ready and feed the horses and, and everything else. We did that. I've got another show coming out on the 9th, 
which is a small Western and they're doing just a 10 minute scene. And I do a lot of these during the year where directors want to come out and put it on their reel or they want to film a 10 minute version of their movie so that they can take it to people and say, hey, would you give us the money to do the full movie? So I have that coming out on the 9th, which happens to be Mother's Day. My wife will have to have dinner later. And then on the 10th, I have one of the cable shows coming out. Then I have a four-day Geico commercial where they're going to be using all sorts of stuff. That's on the ranch. Five years ago, we did a movie called Bone Tomahawk. I was one of the executive producers. And the people who put that movie together called me a month ago and said, okay, we have another Western that we're doing. We want you to do everything. So they sent me the script. They sent me the breakdown. They sent me that. So we're putting that together. And I'm breaking all of that stuff down. We'll film that whenever they're ready. I know their money is in place. It's not a big budget movie. It's a million two. When they say a million two, I go, wow, that's a lot of money. Since last August, we did four movies, all under a million dollars. In February, we went up to Wyoming for four weeks. In January, I was in Tennessee for four weeks doing one. In December, I was in Arizona doing another one. And then in October, November, we were here on the ranch doing the second group of movies. That's fantastic, Peter. Sounds like you've got your plate full. I really look forward to coming back out to the ranch and getting an opportunity to dig through your library with you and see some of your other props. And it was really a great time when we were out there a few months ago. So thank you for being with me today and good luck to you. Thanks, Paul. I enjoyed you coming out here. Thanks for listening. Be sure to check out the Six Gun Justice website at www.sixgunjustice.com for information on prior Six Gun Justice conversations, Six Gun Justice speed listens, and full-length episodes of the Six Gun Justice podcast, along with regularly updated book reviews, articles, and interviews covering all aspects of the Western genre. Until next time, be kind to others, be kind to yourself, and don't squat on your spurs. Adios, we're out of here. Let's ride.